the church is kind of mixed in culture and we've got a lot of stuff that's not faith-filled in our lives and we need to separate ourselves sometimes from the things that are going on in our existence to get back to the core issues of what God has called us to. Sometimes we are just endlessly distracted and these men had a way of separating themselves out and he said, if you will listen to them, you will learn how to be attentive. That's what this morning's message is about. You need to attend to your life in ways that you never understood you need to. And I thought of that word attend. This past week I was, I was building this PowerPoint and I typed in attentive. And Noah, my seven-year-old, came and sat next to me and he sounded out the word. And he sounded out correctly. He said, what in the world is that? I've never heard that word before. And I thought, you know, that's what everybody at Parker Ford Church is going to say Sunday morning too. What, attentive to what? Attend, what does that mean? Well, it means to focus intentionally on something, anything. You know, you need to attend to your health, right? Some of us are runners, we're you know, organic eaters, we're people who take seriously what goes in and to our body and what we do with our body. I, I'm somebody who has a really hard time focusing on my health. That's not real easy for me. But it's important that we attend to our health. It's important that we attend to our spiritual health, our physical health, our lives. It's important that we attend to our marriage and into our relationships. We have to attend to these things. And during this season of the year, what we need to talk about is we need to attend to our hearts. God has called you, and he has called me between now and Easter to be people who attend to something that we don't easily attend to. Chris Hall began the message, and I want to just quote him verbatim a bunch of times. He, he began not by speaking, he began by asking. And he said, you need to analyze your life. You need to evaluate where you're at. And he said, you can't evaluate yourself by saying, are you a Christian? Check that box, no problem. Are you walking with God? Sure. Is there anything in your life? No, I'm good. You know, you, you can't ask questions like that and get real answers, he said. So let me ask you some questions. And he put these out in front of us and said, let me ask you some questions and you let your soul answer. And he just quietly, in a hippie-ish sort of way, put these questions on the board and let us just listen. Now I want to put them up there for you and we're going to read through these. I'll read quietly and then you can just let your soul read them. If you want to write them down for later, it might take longer processing time than we can give them in this message. But here are the questions. The first one is, what's the noise level in my life? What am I listening to? What about silence? Do I not like? What about silence do I not like? What sort of question is that? You ever find yourself just gravitating towards noise? I'm a great podcaster. I'm somebody who listens to music and to noise all the time if I'm not careful. And sometimes it's sermons and good stuff, but sometimes I have to admit, I like ESPN radio. I like these two guys that are on in the morning in Philadelphia, Mike and Mike. And I can podcast them if I miss them in the morning because most mornings I'm working. But from 6 to 10, they have the most fun banter back and forth about everything going on in the world of sports. And I love sports. But I can fill up my life with it. And Chris asked us this question, what about silence do I not like? And I have to admit, sometimes I don't like silence. And sometimes that is a discovery or a realization that the fact is I'm not okay with the core of who I am. How would my best friends rate my skills as a listener? How would my kids rate my ability to listen to them? I just want you to know I did not like that question, and I don't like it this morning either. What's the pace of each day, of my life in general? What listening skills do I need to develop? 
Are there particular learning spaces God may lead me to or ask me to develop? And this kind of lanky, thin, hippie-ish professor asked us these questions, and he said, listen, you might not be somebody who knows how to attend to your own soul, to your own heart. You might not be someone who's capable of hearing God in your life. And your soul might be lost out on a, uh, on a sea of technology and absolute distraction, and you can't find who God called you to be. Maybe there's just too much noise. It's not sin. It's just clutter. It's stuff. You're, you're, you're bogged down, he said. And I had to admit, when I read those words, I thought my pace is crazy and my listening is not always good. I'm a good listener when it comes to my job. There are people who, when they get in pain, I can hear them out. I can sit and listen. But when I'm following the frenetic pace of my life, somebody just kind of jerking on my sleeves and saying, yes, you need to hear me, especially if that person shares my last name, it's not easy for me. Not easy at all. And I, I... think that what's going on in all of these questions is we find out where our heart is actually at. We have a hard time personally giving our heart up, and we have a hard time finding it and being translucent about it and being pure about it, and and we have a hard time with the sense that we need to attend to this thing and that it's an absolute discipline and that it's critical that we know where we're at. And I think we just plain get lost. And when Chris put these out there, he said, you know, you need to focus and get down to some things that you do well. You know, our life is made up of core things that God has called us to. And those things are not all churchy things. They're not like you got to tithe and you got to work at church and you got, no, they're they're things like you got to eat and you got to sleep and you got to have a vocation and you've got to relate to the people God has called you to relate to. You got to have good relationships with your spouse. You got to have good relationships with your kids and with your friends. These are important parts of life. And he says, these are core pieces of who you are. God wants you to be good in those things. But then there are the other things, and those things are distractions, and they can easily noise up our life. And frankly, we like those things better because they can distract us from the fact that we have deficit over here in the core issues. We easily move towards the distractions of our life and gravitate towards them. It's easy to turn on Mike and Mike in the morning and listen, for me, to sports radio. And it's easy to get kind of sucked into that television show. It's easy to get focused on this, that, or the other thing. Technology is something last week Jay McCumber was talking about, right? He kind of shared with us the fact that maybe the most distracting thing in our life are all these screens that we have. We just keep looking at them and looking at them and looking at them. And we get covered in our hearts by what's going on in our screens. And we're looking at everything else and not looking in here. And when we actually get alone with ourselves, we're not actually that comfortable anymore. And he says to attend to your heart, means to be okay and to be focused internally. The Bible tells us right from the get-go what God wants out of us. And we don't like it. It starts in Genesis and it goes through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. All of them have something to do with this, but most explicitly, most clearly, most abstractly, just in clear English, Deuteronomy 4 just puts it out there and says, I want your whole God says that in Deuteronomy 4. And Deuteronomy repeats that line again and again and again and again. In the Old Testament, repeats it again and again. Some of the Psalms quote that line. Many of the prophets do. Maybe most famously, hundreds of years later, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29 said, I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to do good and to bless you. 
And you're going to seek me and you're going to find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. And he was quoting Deuteronomy. He was quoting what God said about you and what God said about me. And that's that God is dissatisfied with anything less than all of our heart. And he was writing in a time when the people of Israel had really bombed. And they were going the wrong way with God. And there was this kind of revival under a guy's name, Josiah, who led them in this amazing revival. And they turned towards God. But then Jeremiah says, you only turned really with half a heart. You need to turn with all of who you are. And I just want you to know that I don't know that there's a more daunting challenge in the Bible than turning to God and experiencing him with all of our heart. Our heart is not available. We have a hard time with what's in here. We have a hard time finding it, and we have a hard time giving it up all at the same time. I want to read for you, and I've put on this PowerPoint, a bunch of different scriptures. And they're just all from the Old Testament sages. You know, when I thought of who's like the Desert Fathers and that they kind of got set apart and they were separate from all of what this world's about, these sages in the Old Testament, the wisdom literature, I, it was fascinating. Corey, you put up there a Song of Solomon quote. You know, people weren't allowed to read Song of Solomon in the Old Testament era unless you were a certain age. Men weren't allowed to read that book because it's so erotic. And if you ever read it in Hebrew, it's even worse or maybe better, depending on your perspective. But it's hard telling whether the poet, who is actually a sage, was talking about a relationship between a man and a woman, or the intimacy that God wanted to have with us. And Song of Solomon simultaneously talks about romance and marriage and relationship with human beings, but it also metaphorically speaks deeper into what it's all about with God. It's a great quote, what we put on our screen this morning. And when we walk through these scriptures, you're going to see there's questions about our heart. There's, there's callings about our heart, and it's all about what God wants to do in your heart. And the Proverbs and the psalmists write about this. So let me begin by reading Proverbs 4.23. It says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Did you know that God wants to pour his life into you and through you into the lives of other people. And if your heart is not kept, if it is not tended, if you are not attentive to what's going on in your heart, that life stops up. And you're not flowing life out here. You're battling it up. And maybe you're battling it up even before it gets to you, and you're just not walking in the richness and the fullness of what God has for your life. You're not attending to your heart, and so your heart isn't available to God. And so life, activity is endlessly available to you maybe, but life as God intended it, eternal life, the sort of thing that Jesus was talking about with the woman on the well, the well, the water that overflows and pours out into everybody else's life, it's not there. Keep your heart with all vigilance, the proverb writer says, for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 3.3 says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 112, 6 through 8. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. You know, there's a question all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the Bible, where do you run when trouble comes? Because trouble comes to everybody, right? I sat in a doctor's office three weeks ago, and it was the sort of moment when the doctor called me in, and you didn't. it was either cancer or it was not. I've never had that experience, you know, quite to this extent. And many of you have gotten the bad report. I got a good one, but I was sitting in this little office all by myself waiting for this woman to come in and tell me what the next six months were going to look like. 
That has gone wrong for people after people, all sorts of persons in this church, and we have had to walk with them through this pain and difficulty. And the God of the universe says, if in that moment your heart is rested in him, if it is stabilized and focused on the cross, if it is rooted in what God has always been about, then you will find yourself immovable. You won't be shaken. You won't be anxiety-riven with all of this angst and hurt in your life. Of course, most of us, that's not easy. Because our hearts are lost, at least to some extent. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. Psalm 119.11 reads, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, there's the core things in our life that we know we need to be about and responsibly handle. And then there's the distractions in our life that we need to keep to a minimum. There's some of the stuff that's probably okay. It's not like talk radio is evil. But then on the other hand, at least most talk radio, and over here on this end, there's actual sin, right? That's the stuff that's outside the lines. And you can get lost over in the, the first one of these and lost in the second. But if you get lost in the third, you get broken. You're on the wrong side of those lines all across the scriptures that say this is what God thinks. And if you get on the wrong side of it, it will damage your life and it will damage those you love and it will damage your relationship with the Father God. And so we have the core things and then we have the distraction things and then we just have the sinful things. And what the psalmist writes is store up what God has said. Pour it into your life. Keep it in there. Make sure you focus on it. Let it be the thing that indwells your heart because then you won't go to that third category. You won't feel the need to compensate for all of the lackings in your life because you will be full because the God who loves you will speak into who you are and he will reveal your heart and he will show you how much he loves you. But we get lost over here because we want to go after other things and then we need things that are actually damaging to us. Those are addictions. All sin is addictive. Is addictive. Psalm 119.32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Hearts don't stay the same shape. They can atrophy and get smaller. Your spirit can get shriveled and small, or it can be focused and connected to God, and it can get larger and grow and be filled with life for you and for other people. Psalm 119.61 is the last one. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. April 15th is on its way, right? We are one month and 13 days away from April 15th, and there will be a prince who oppresses you. Some of you believe that's unjust. Others of you think you owe it. I won't go there at all. But in the moment when you have to pay those taxes, or maybe you think of it every week in your paycheck, or maybe you're thinking of some other leader or someone else who's offended you and has oppressed you, but you have been oppressed in your life. You have been the victim of injustice. Everybody is at some point. The question is, where will your heart be in that moment? And this psalm says, listen, God is so absolutely awe, amazing, awe-inspiring that he can cause you to see beyond the moment of great difficulty and to see him and all of his glory. And it will change the fact that you are facing difficulty to know that there is God who is so much more awe-inspiring than your difficulty looks that it is proportionately a small issue compared to what God wants to do in your life. Isn't that a great thought? That the God of the universe is so big that once you start to observe him and watch him and be filled with awe towards him, that even the most difficult things in your life, including foreign oppressors or people who come in and do stuff that's not right, whatever the case may be, that stuff is going to be small compared to the grandeur of who the Father is and how much he loves you. We don't talk this way very easily, but Song of Solomon is built on that and much of the Bible is built on it in one way, shape, or form. That's what God is after, your whole heart. 
And this year, what he wants is for you to set time aside. There's nothing magical about Lent. There's nothing amazing about this season of the year. It's 40 days set apart. The church has done it for a long time because it's based on the most important period in history when Jesus offered up his life. The giver of life gave up his own life so that we could be saved. And we are marching now towards the cross and we don't know, even though we do, we don't know or we shouldn't... admit that we know that the resurrection is on the way too. We have to walk through the pain of what Jesus is all about to experience the darkness of betrayal and then turn around and come out on the other end and see the light and the beauty of the resurrection and the fact that God has conquered death once and for all. But it takes our heart. And if our heart's not in it, then we will miss the whole thing. In this season, we need to give our heart to him. And these 40 days are about revealing and opening up and cleansing and becoming something different inside of who we are. We need to learn to attend to our heart. We're going to walk through, in the remaining time we have, three different sections, hopefully. Three different sections of of what life is about as far as attentiveness. The first one is just simply to attend to your heart. And we've been talking about that, but we're going to go one step further. Then we're going to talk about attending to the story. And the third is we're going to attend to the Holy Spirit, the life of the Holy Spirit inside of each of us. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. You know, this psalm just says this, a most amazing thing. It's It's... Pure is one of those things. I grew up in a Baptist church, and purity meant you didn't have sex. I'm just going to put it out there. And at some point, you know, it's kind of funny. Simplistically, you know, you don't have sex. That's what it's about. I'm reading a book called Real Sex by Lauren Winner. It's a great book about why discipline in the relationships in your life is actually important. And she goes into all the things that are broken in the world related to sexual stuff, you know. It's just phenomenal. And the percentages that she talks about are, are... They're shaking. We're broken in relationship to intimacy. And it's because our hearts are empty that we have this problem. This psalm says something more than just about sex. It says, listen, purity is like a refreshing. It's like you're supposed to be cleansed. You're supposed to have an open heart towards God. You can walk. This word means translucent. It's like a mountain stream that you take a cup of water out of it and you can see all the way through that glass without anything impeding your view because it's so absolutely pure. And you can respond to other people and you can respond to God because of the purity of your soul. And the psalmist says, how can a young man keep his way from going down all of those roads that are going to distract him and break him and turn his heart into something that's shriveled and dark and difficult? How can he lose, how can he avoid losing his way? By guarding it according to your word, says the psalmist. When Psalm 119 was written, there was no Bible like there is today. We have 66 books. We kind of consider them authoritative, inspired, written words of God. They are true and they are authoritative. We believe in these things, but they weren't there when the psalmist wrote this. What he meant was something a little bit more than just the written word of God. What he meant was there is words, there are words that God is speaking into your life and you need to collect them and store them and watch them like a like a watch person on the wall of an ancient city looking for an enemy because out there there are things that are looking to destroy your life. And if you are filling your heart with the word of God, and if you are cleansing this stuff that goes on in the midst and you're seeing it coming along the way, then you will have a pure heart and you will have something with which you can respond to the Father God. I love this passage. I hate preaching it. It's not easy for me. My heart is not pure. Not anywhere close. Most moments when I get alone with God, I have to spend a good long time trying to get to the place where I can actually just have a conversation. 
I have to get all sorts of stuff out of the way. You know, last week we had this prayer time for Shelby and I. If you weren't here, it was one of those humiliating moments when I admitted, admitted I'm not enough. And a week later, I'm still not enough, i got to tell you. You know, Shelby was headed out of town this past Monday. She was in Anaheim Monday through Friday, and she actually didn't get in until Saturday because the flights were so backed up. And, you know, I, I make fun of my wife a lot, but I really love her. I really do. I know I'm going to embarrass you, but I, I mean, it was not a good week. Somebody asked me before the first service, was your week better than last week? And I said, no, I survived. The kids are here. We're, we're okay. But I miss Shelby because she's my partner in life and somebody who, with whom I walk through life. And it's just our relationship is so essential to who I am. I can't live without her. At least it feels that way. And I knew this was all coming up. And so Saturday morning, 4.30 in the morning, I've been waking up early in the morning. I don't know why. No alarm. Just wake up in the morning. I, I got to pray because this week is going to be difficult. And the last two weeks have been difficult. Some of those difficulties I, I can't even tell you about. There's just been stuff hammering our life. We see all these different things. Some of them economic, others of them this, that, and the other thing. But we have been in a moment when God, I, I call it the, 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 the kind of the hotbed. You know, we're, we're being heated up. And hopefully there's going to be a change in our life through this time. But God is working. At least he's working on me, and I can feel it. So I got up in the morning, and I started to walk. And when I need to pray, I don't do well sitting when I'm praying. And so I walked, and I walked across the section of Pottstown. And I walked for about 15 minutes, and I, st- I was trying to pray. I had the worship music in my earbuds, you know, and it was great. And great music. And I was trying to pray, and I just couldn't find anything in there that was worth hearing. I thought, I'm embarrassed that God's got to listen to this dribble, you know? What I was praying wasn't worthwhile at all. I prayed a little bit longer, and finally I just said, God, you know, you need to look in here and see what's going on because I can't find my heart enough to pray to you. There's nothing in here that's pure enough where I can actually reveal it and offer something worthwhile to the living God of the universe. And it's as though I could start to see him reshuffling the deck of my heart. You know, he started to move things around. I don't know if you believe God can do this, but and, and I couldn't see it. This is imaginative language, but things were kind of moving in these ways that I couldn't understand. And underneath them, something was coming into view. And God was saying, what are you afraid of? And he pulled out of my heart this thing that he put up in front of my face. And he said, listen, you're afraid of this. And I looked at it and I said, I'm not afraid of that. And he said, not only are you afraid of it now, but you've been afraid of it as long as you can remember. And pictures of my childhood when I was afraid of that very same thing, eight, nine, ten years old, he pulled it out. I'm not going to share it with you because it's deep. It's not so sinful. It's just broken. He's like, you've been all of this time existing with a fear that's inside of your life that I've never agreed with. The word confession means that we agree with God about ourselves. And he said, listen, are you going to agree with me about who you are? Because I never have been okay with this fear. And you have it in your heart, and it's, it's tying up everything that you're about. And you're not, a, you're not able to offer yourself to me because of this fear. It's like a Christmas tree. And once I saw that this whole thing was broken and inside of me, he pulled that Christmas tree out, and then he started to show me the ornaments that were hanging out. He said, your life has all of these different little pieces of fear, and they're all connected to this one big fear, and you didn't even know it existed. And he said, and you can't pray today until you get this thing out there. I wrote it in my journal later that day. I outlined it. I said, this is what's wrong with me. I'm sure there's much more to come. But God, in that moment, was bringing my heart to a place of purity. We have a 
difficulty in our society. For some reason right now, sociologists, psychologists talk about it. We don't make decisions well. We don't make them early. We take our time and we can't commit. Why, why would we commit to one woman when there's all of these women out there? Why would we commit to one career path when there's all of these different opportunities? Why would we commit to one church or one religion? Why would we commit to McDonald's when there's a Burger King next door? The choices of our world just keep going and going and going and they clutter our lives. And our hearts grow unpure and unclean, not because of so much sin, but just because of so much stuff. And God says, listen, let me clear that thing up. I think that some of us need to hear that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. We may be so removed from our heart that we can't even find where that thing is because we're living in a distracted way in the core of who we are. We can't even, we can't even talk about what we desire. We may talk about what compels us or attracts us. We may be talking about titillating things that attract our imagination, but those are all actual distractions. The thing your soul needs, the thing your heart needs, you might very much never know that. God could ask you verbatim, what do you want? As he once asked Solomon, and you wouldn't know how to answer that question. And I didn't know that morning when I was prayer walking. I want this, this, and this, I said to God. And he said, that's not what you want. And he just kept saying, that's not what you want until we got to this one issue. And he said, this is what you want. This is what you need to want at least. Let me put it out in front of you and let me say that you need to get rid of this. You need to agree with me about it because I never put that fear in you. It's been hard. I didn't enjoy that. You know, you don't prayer walk and talk actually. You, you got to talk in your head because otherwise I'm afraid the Pottstown police will pick me up and take me to the top level of the Pottstown hospital. You know what I'm saying? But then when you're not talking and then you start crying, at one point I was weeping, honestly, and this boxer named Noah came out and chased me. And I thought I, thought I was going to get eaten for sure. He chased me right down and then I thought, this is it, you know, and then he licked me at the end of it. It was no big deal. And it's prayer walking, and the lady was looking at me like, oh, there you are, petting my dog. You know, this lady who's just barely gotten out of bed to let her dog out in the morning. It's 5 o'clock in the morning at this point, and I'm crying my eyes out, and I think, she thinks I'm an idiot. And I am an idiot because I've been covering up my heart from God. But I felt like an idiot for a few less profound reasons than that. Where's your heart this morning? God wants you to attend to your heart because he wants access to your heart. And if you don't know where your heart is, he doesn't have access to it. And you're not walking in the fullness of the life that he wants to pour into your life. He wants to give you something that's greater than you've ever experienced. And yet we're walking in the kind of half-light of a life half-lived because we're distracted and busy and bothered by everything else than what's important. I don't know what it's worth you giving up this, this Lent. But whatever it is, it's about finding your heart. And God very well might not tell you what you need to discipline yourselves and give up because he wants to know, are you going to give it up for the sake of love of God or not? We need to move on. You need to attend to something else during this Lenten season. This is attend to the story. You know, the, the, the story of what God is about in this season is absolutely amazing. The fact that the giver of life comes to earth and dies for us, the giver of life dies. The giver of life gives up his life for us. You can walk through the storyline of what the, what the gospel is all about, and we're going to walk through it with this book. I even brought one up here with me. Walt Wangren is one of my favorite writers. He's a Lutheran pastor, and he has changed my life. We're, we're living the passion. This isn't a sales job. It's just the fact that you need to give attention to the story that God has put in front of us, and we need to walk authentically through this time. We easily forget that the disciples never knew, never knew 
that the resurrection was going to happen. Jesus told them, and they still didn't believe it, because who would? If you told me I was going to rise from the dead later in life, you're crazy. And that's what they all said about Jesus. And so when he died, they were left without a hope. You know, those disciples actually sat and stared at a wall in a room for a good long time, for days, it says. That's my version of the story. But they actually sat there and said, we're not going anywhere because we don't know where else to go because the giver of life has just left our lives. That's a storyline worth hearing, and you need to walk authentically through this Lenten season to get yourself reattached heart-wise to what God's story is all about. Because most of the stories that seem important to us are much, much, much lesser storylines than this one story where life was bought for you and for me. Walt Wangren writes it this way. But in the economy of God, what seems the end is but a preparation. The disciples approached the resurrection from their bereavement. For them, the death was first, and the death was all. Once Jesus breathed his last, his eyes glazed over, his lungs exhaled a last bit of air, and he was dead. The thought that the God of the universe had died in the midst of his friends and family at the hands of some Roman soldiers because the Jews wanted him killed, they were terrified. For them, the death was first and the death was all. Easter then was an explosion of newness, a marvelous slitting of heaven. Indeed, nobody saw the resurrection coming. But for us, you and me, who return backward into the past, the resurrection comes first. And through it, we view a death which is therefore less consuming, less horrible, and frankly, even less red. We read the death story of Jesus and we don't even need to enter into it because we know he rises from the dead anyway. You need to grieve this land. You need to come into contact with the Savior in the way that you hurt because you identify with what God is doing. You need to read those stories and you need to think, if I was Peter, what would I have been thinking? If I was Judas Iscariot, and I have been, and you have been, what would I be doing? If I was Jesus, what would I be feeling in the way of pain? We miss the disciples' terrible, wonderful preparation. Unless as now we attend to the suffering first, to the cross with sincerest pity and vigilant love, to the dying with most faithful care, and thus prepare for joy. You will never experience the joy that God has for your life that will come at that moment when you realize the resurrection is real unless you identify with the storyline all the way through and you hear the brokenness and the reverberating pain that is going back and forth through all of these accounts. You have to hear the story fresh every year because it changes your heart to know the storyline of what God is about. And even though we know the story all the way through, we need to hear it fresh. We need to hear it like we've never had ears before. A few years ago when I was in Michigan, we had a service. All of the pastors put it on at a local church. It was one centralized church. And any business people who could get off on their lunch hour were invited to come and spend 20 minutes in this service. It was three hours long, and anybody could come and spend 20 minutes or 40 minutes, and you left at certain increments. It was just free for people to come and go. And the pastors kept the service going for three hours, speaking and worship and music and all of this different stuff. And all of our pastors went, except they felt God's call not to go. And because our church was, was empty, an empty church is an awesome place to pray. I got on the piano, and I don't want to admit this because you're never allowed to hear it, but I can actually play the piano. And I got up on that grand piano. I don't play like Michael or Mike Whistler or, you know, any of our great musicians. I, I sight read, and I pulled up the hymnal, and I started to read hymns about the death of Jesus. And it was, it was Good Friday, and I started to think a couple thousand years ago, 
There was a God, and he's a father, just like today I'm a father. And he was watching his son die, and he realized that it was because he sent his own son to death, and it was for me that that son was dying. And I started to plunk out these chords, and they actually sounded good to me for a change in the middle of this great empty auditorium. And I played this music, and one of the songs I played was, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. It reads, O sacred head now wounded with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. How pale thou art with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. How does that visage languish, which once was bright as morn? It goes on and on with grievous words. And I found my heart connected to what God was going through. It felt like I was no longer alone in the room and there was a father there who was not me and he was experiencing more pain than I've ever experienced in my life. The most grief-striking moment for God was the moment when his son breathed his last. It was not Good Friday, I realized. Tears running down my cheeks just like there were in last week in Pottstown. Hurt and pain, and it wasn't my pain, it was God's pain. And if you haven't thought about Lent and thought about the resurrection and thought about the death of Christ and thought about all the things that lead up to that moment, from the standpoint of God, you are missing a huge portion of what this is all about. Let your heart be connected. Let your heart be riven with pain for the God of the universe who has given himself up for you and for me. He was willing that his son would die so that we could live. He watched and agonized with all of that. I'm going to cut the third point because we don't have time and I don't want to make what's going on less by just saying more words. But let me give you a final thought. In Galatians 5.1, there is this, it's just absolutely fascinated me of late. There's this quote. It says, it is for freedom that you have been set free. Why does God want you to travel the road of Lent? Why does he want you to be attentive to your heart? Why does he want you to be attentive to the storyline of what God is all about in this world? Why does he want you to reshape yourself and give him you? Why does he want that? Why does he want all of your heart? In Genesis chapter 3, there's the darkest moment, you know? The one that preceded Jesus' death, the darkest moment is when those two first people took a bite of that one fruit, right? And afterwards, they, the Bible tells us they knew they were naked and they hid behind whatever there was that was sneaky and secretive in the Garden of Eden. They said, we don't want you to see us, God. He came down and he wa- tried to walk with them in the cool of the day and instead they were hiding and they said, we know we're naked. And he said, well, how do you know you're naked? Nobody ever knew that before. There were no clothes. How do you get naked if there's no clothes? And that's a story that's worth reading. But the story that's not in there is the story of the fact that the language makes it clear that God had walked with them in the cool of the day before that moment. They had walked nakedly, translucent, pure, clean of heart through the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden with God. Maybe they'd done it hundreds and thousands of times. We don't know how many times that was. But they talked like two people who have been friends for forever just discussing life, talking about fruit, talking about animals, talking about who knows what, but they discussed life and God showed up for that connection point once again. The connection point, the last call of the day, the last call of the day for Adam and Eve, think about this, was not some human being, not some boyfriend across the state. It was actually God who showed up and they were invited to enter into a conversation with him every day and in the cool of the day, they were, they were invited to do this great walk and what happened? They gave it all up. And Paul writes thousands of years later, it is for that freedom that those two first people experienced. 
A freedom of not knowing they were naked, not knowing that their lives were shame-filled, not knowing all of this grief and guilt and brokenness that we all have. He said, God has made a way for you to get back to that moment. Get rid of that shame. It, it, it's, it's dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ, Paul writes, and it is for freedom that you have been set free. Why did Jesus die? So you could be free from sin. So you don't need to be an orphan, you can be a son. So you don't need to be a slave, you can be free. You can get rid of all these behaviors and you can set yourself apart to be somebody who walks with God. And of course, we decide not to be free again and again. But it is for that freedom of walk, that freedom of clarity, that freedom of a pure heart that God has set you free. And it's because he just wanted to have a conversation in the cool of the day. What does God want? He wants your heart. And he wants your heart so he can talk with you. And why does he want your heart? Because he likes you. At the center of the universe is a God who says, I like people. I'm a fan of the human race. I love you. Give me your heart so we can talk. Purify it so there's space, so you can see who you are and you can make choices that lead you to me. Follow the storyline of what God is all about so you can understand the cost. Grace is absolutely free. Nobody's earned an ounce of it. But it's never cheap. And Jesus has offered himself up that we can have a pure, clean heart. Will you attend to it this Lent? Join me in prayer.